Harvard Divinity School. Healing from Extremism, How Community Members Can Help Loved Ones Exit Hate, April 11th, 2022. All right, good evening, everyone, in Ramadan Kareem. My name is Maya James, and I'm a second-year MTS student focusing on religion, ethics, and politics. I am also the current Harvard Divinity School Student Association president and an intervention assistant and extremism researcher at Parents for Peace. Above all other titles and degrees, I am a storyteller. I put this event together because I've always believed that stories have the power to move, shake, and heal ourselves and the world around us. Stories make us whole. When I initially joined Parents for Peace, as an intern, I sat in on over 100 extremism interventions to help families get their children out of hate and extremism or recover from these ideologies. I had an idea of how complicated people could be, but even more so at their lowest moments in life. You'll soon learn, as I did, that what we are discussing here is not politics, but a lesson in our shared humanity. The strands of empathy that bind us and break us. No one is born into hate nor are they stuck in it forever. Throughout my time at Parents for Peace, I've also undergone a deep transformation of my faith. As a Christian, I had to question what it truly meant to be forgiving going into this work. As a Black woman whose family has suffered immensely at the hands of hate groups in the US, I had to ask myself, am I actually willing to do this work? To bear witness to hate every day on the job and off the clock. On the day of my interview with Miriam and Emma, which I did not realize was an interview until it began, <laughs> I had the words of my recently passed mentor, Elijah Cummings, in my heart. He would always tell me and others he mentored through his leadership programs that you are the message we send to a future we will never see. With my parents naming me Maya, meaning messenger of God, I made the choice to work in an organization that does the good, difficult work. I made the choice to cultivate my voice alongside my coworkers who are also willing to do this transformative and healing work during these turbulent times. With my time at Parents for Peace coming to a close, I'm honored to have worked with many of the panelists here. Throughout the evening, you will witness how people got into hate and what got them out. You also hear how clinicians, chaplains, and other community members play a role in this process. Topics may be particularly distressing for some audience members today, so we urge you to reach out to any of the resources you may have available. Before I introduce Mr. Melvin Bledsoe, co-founder of Parents for Peace, I wanna begin by thanking our sponsors and those who made this event happen. First, to the Radcliffe Institute for selecting me to be a part of the Radcliffe Student Engage program under their youth leadership focus area and additional funding to make this event possible. I want to especially thank Amanda Lubinowski for her mentorship and guidance throughout the process. Thank you, Amanda. Second, to the Office of Student Life at Harvard Divinity School, the Harvard Divinity School Student Association, the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life, and other members of the Divinity School community that helped me prepare for this event. I would especially like to thank Katie Capanera for answering my numerous and detailed emails. Mike Nodden for his help promoting this event and the Diversity Fund grant for funding this program. I also would like to thank the Harvard Office for Equity, Inclusion, Diversity and Belonging for their funding. Special thanks to Parents for Peace for being a part of this event. 
and the special guests that are here with us tonight. We thank you for being here. I wanna especially thank our panelists, speakers, and moderators for making the time to be here. <laughs> you will now hear from Mr. Melvin Bledsoe, founder of Parents for Peace. Melvin Bledsoe is the co-founder of Parents for Peace. His family have lived in Memphis for generations and he is proud of his hometown's history and culture. He founded Blue City Tours to introduce his heritage to visitors to Memphis, and he has served as a guide to thousands of tourists, sharing insights on blues music and more. Melvin comes from a family where many of his siblings and relatives served in the US military. After his son Carlos was recruited by violent extremists and murdered a soldier in Arkansas, Melvin channeled his pain into advocacy. He has testified to Congress and been featured in numerous national media outlets, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and CNN. Please help me welcome Mr. Melvin Bledsoe. Thank you, thank you, Maya. I wanna first start off by uh, thanking uh, Boston headquarters here for doing all the work they do and thank all the people who came to Boston today. Thank the panel and thank all of you for being here. I have a story to tell and I like telling my story to the world. The story I wanna tell, it's gonna help others. Story about my son, Carlos. That story started after he graduated from high school in Memphis, went off to a higher education in Nashville, 200 miles away to be in school away from the family. He wanted to go to school, he said, to take up a course in business so he can give me early retirement. I liked it, Dad. I liked it that very much. After about a year in school, freshman year to second year, as a sophomore, trouble came his way. And that trouble was on one weekend, a trip to Knoxville, 200 miles from Nashville. He got in trouble with a few other college students, they went to Knoxville and got stopped by the police. In the car, they found marijuana and a gun, a couple of guns. Carlos was arrested because his friends ran off. He was arrested, so the car, the car belonged to him. It was in his name. So therefore, Carlos was facing probation uh, one year. The judge told him, if you get into any trouble, you would have, you would face perhaps 10 years in prison. So that scared him running for help. He ran to look for a different religion. He grew up as a Baptist. So he went to the Jewish synagogue. They didn't receive him very well. So then he turned around and went to the mosque and they opened arms, opened arms to him and welcomed him to the brotherhood. And that's when his real trouble began. So sophisticated people that was there looking for opportunity for someone who was grieving and the extremists took advantage of his grieving. That led him to changing his lifestyle, his behavior and his thoughts. From there, it also sent him away from Nashville, away from the family, away from everything, everyone who loved him, over to a foreign country in the Middle East called Yemen. There he was in a rocky 
erupted mountains of Yemen being brainwashed. He had to learn how to read the Quran and remember every word in it for 23 hours a day and one hour of sleep until he could remember every word in the Quran. This religion, Islam, it's not a bad religion just to the people who try to twist it into something different. With so many fashions of the religion, he knew nothing about the religion. He did not know anything about the religion. He thought he did. He was being brainwashed after being led to the mosque uh, from Nashville by the uh, Iman as a recommendation to go to a false front British school in Yemen to teach the English language and learn how to speak Arabic. He was told he would be able to go to the Mecca in which all Muslims should be able to do once in life. He was told he could just walk across the bridge from, from Yemen into Saudi Arabia to do this. Wasn't true. Okay. Nevertheless, by the time he found out all this was a lie and he was being bamboozled, um, hookwinked, uh, lied to, brainwashed, manipulated, and all this turned into a mental state of mind. A mental state of mind is something that most experts have been studying what happens to young men after they've been violently brainwashed by the extremists. It's a mental illness. It's a public health issue. And we are trying to make sure that other people in America and around the world, I'm reaching my hand out to Americans and I reach my hand even further to the world. I want the world to hear me. And I think the world is beginning to hear me. As I take you back in time, from Yemen's while he was brainwashed, he was he's also had an arranged wedding to a woman he did not very know that well, but he was married to her in Yemen's. Part of the, the sophistication that is the brainwashing tactics. Um, so from there, he was apprehended one day for overstaying his visa in Yemen. And uh, he was put in a political jail. There he were, uh, not knowing anyone in a strange country, young man whose mind hadn't fully developed. He thought he was being led to a good place, ended up in a very bad place, uh, incarcerated around hardcore extremists, well known by the American fishers, while they further brainwashed him while incarcerated in that political jail for three months. For three months, he was being loaded up like a bomb for three months. Then he was released after I uh, read a lot of pots and pans in Washington. Uh, along with my local congressman and others who helped me rattle those pots and pans. He was released by the Yemenese authority to come back to America. Little did I know that he was loaded like a bomb. Uh, I had no idea, but I must tell you, from my research and from my investigation through private investigators, the American government was aware. They were aware 
of my son being radicalized to the point that he might do something. So he was loaded like a bomb and sent back to Memphis to do something. And do something he did after we started a extension of our private owned tour bus company to Little Rock, west 135 miles. We got an apartment where he stayed in an apartment. We groomed him to train him to become a manager of the extension of the business. Had I known that, he would never have been in an apartment alone to plan and do what he did. Do what he did was uh, he shot at him uh, and killed an American soldier and wanted another one. From there, my family, we, we, was, we was totally destroyed. I got a call one morning from the FBI and said, you need to come to Little Rock. Uh, your son had done something very bad. My wife was on the other side as we were driving to Little Rock and he said, and someone died in the process. My heart dropped to my feet. We had to cry on each other's shoulders. We had no one else to cry to. No one else to turn to. No one else to help us. We was all by ourselves trying to figure this out on what to do. What, what to do, okay? Um, from there, I continued to try to figure my way through. I end up doing a couple of um, films. Uh, I did a film about the story of my son's life along with the victim's father. He and I traveled the country together telling our story about how we lost our son, we. He lost his son to radical Islam. I lost my son uh, to, well, he lost his son to radical jihad. I lost my son to radical Islam. So we both lost our son. And we told our story to many places around the country. People could not believe that we were standing beside each other talking. But I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to channel my pain into a purpose. And that purpose I feel, I feel like I should do something. I want to reach out and help people. I want to give people uh, something I didn't know. 2020 hindsight, uh, what led to this? And how they can open their eyes up to help this from happen to any other citizen in America and other places in the world. We have people of different background on stage here as a panel, but we all have the same reason to try to help. Uh, and I think to look at that, to understand the background of the panels that's on stage here, you would understand uh, Parents of Peace was born. Parents for Peace. We want to be able to help other here in America. And I think that we are on the right path. Many of you are helping us, and we thank you for doing so. I myself feel that I want to do more. I want to help young Black men to understand that they need to stop the violence against each other as well. So if, if there is anyone who can help me do that, I, I will welcome that help as well. So here today, I wanna thank you. I wanna thank Maya and everyone else for being here. I also want to recognize my co-founder, my daughter, Monica, could you stand please? Monica, Monica Holly, she's, she's always there with me, no matter where we go, we travel together. And um, we do this together as a family. We both love 
my son and her brother. We love him. Even though the crime that he committed, you have to know there was a crime committed against him before he committed his crime. There's no one being brought to justice on that. Criminal justice in America needs to reform. Criminal justice needs to reform. I think that the penal, the penal justice, prison reform needs to look, very much look at as well. Because there's so many people with mental illness, mental behavior that needs rehabilitation, not just thrown into a warehouse and no one cares, no one gives a damn. That's, that's not America. We need to be better than that. Thank you. Thank everyone. Thank you, Mr. Bledsoe, for those powerful words and for sharing your story with us. Thank you. We will now hear from Miriam Churchill, Executive Director of Parents for Peace. Miriam Churchill is the Executive Director of Parents for Peace. She has over 30 years of experience of setting, working in a variety of settings with a range of populations in Europe and the US. Beginning her career in France, she intervened with first and second generation North African immigrant sex workers on the streets of Marseille and facilitated group therapy in a juvenile detention center in Nice. In the US, Churchill worked as a group therapy counselor in an inpatient dual diagnosis unit at Beth Israel Deaconess and as program director of a dual diagnosis drop-in center in suburban Boston. She obtained several life coach and professional coach certifications and has maintained a coaching practice based in Monaco since 2000. She also developed and delivered training programs in the Institute Regional Administration in France, teaching coaching strategies to improve leadership and management in the French regional government context and conducting follow-up coaching sessions with officials who received the training. Her therapy and coaching background were essential to the development of the Parents for Peace Helpline model, and her native language skills have aided in the organization's growing connections with counter-extremism programs in Montreal, France, and Belgium. Please help me welcome Mrs. Miriam Churchill. So before I introduce myself uh, and the work we do at Parents for Peace, I would like to thank you, Maya, for organizing this event and thank you for the incredible work you have been doing uh, Parents for Peace. We're very grateful. Thank you to the Harvard Divinity School for hosting us today to speak uh, about such an important topic. Also, Melvin, and Monica, thank you for founding Parents for Peace, uh, for your decision to stand up and speak out about what happened to your family. Many people rather kind of be quiet, but you didn't do that. So we thank you for that. Um, you have used your painful experience to help improve how America and the international community understand and prevent extremism and help ensure that no other family experiences your pain. So my name is Miriam Churchill and I am the executive director for Friends for Peace. I am also a first responder, which I'm very proud of. 
Uh, there's nothing more fulfilling to help people exit hate. We are a nonprofit alliance that unites families impacted by extremism, former extremists, and survivors of violent extremism. Our mission is to assist families, friends, and anyone concerned about a loved one becoming involved with extremism. So our members have seen, just like uh, Carlos, they have seen their sons and daughters get manipulated, groomed, and trafficked into an extremist dead end. The grooming into extremism is a process and a psychological manipulation. In fact, extremists prey upon vulnerability. That is why the main groups that are a target of extremists are youth and veterans. Um, my colleagues here, Chris Buckley and Mubin Sheikh, uh, will share their stories in this panel so you can uh, understand how one can uh, end up joining an extremist group. So five years ago, there was no resource uh, or guidelines for families concerned about a loved one falling into extremism. So the main intervention work was conducted by law enforcement and consistent in uh, arresting people before or after they were committed an act of violence. So hoping to fill this gap in 2016, uh, Parents for Peace launched the first nationwide helpline for people seeking confidential guidance uh, about extremism. So our helpline is fully independent from the US government and law enforcement. The goal of the helpline is to empower families and friends to help loved one at risk of extremism. Today, anyone can call 1-844-49-PEACE to get help. Uh, this is thanks to you, uh, Melvin and Monica. Uh, we intervene cross ideologies from white supremacy to Muslim supremacy, Antifa, QAnon, and more. Unfortunately, today, I don't have time uh, to go in depth about this issue, but at Parents for Peace, we recognize that hate is a drug of choice, and extremism is a form of addiction. This issue is still you know, widely misunderstood. It is really hard to comprehend uh, that extremism can be a coping mechanism, just like drugs or alcohol or self-harming, that are sometimes used to numb a pain or an underlying issue. Today, I'm very grateful that we're speaking about this issue at the uh, Harvard Divinity School based on firsthand accounts of radicalization. We have witnessed how clerics can be part of the problem and part of the solution. It is important that this issue is addressed. Let me give you three uh, examples about what I mean. Carlos, for instance, was groomed on campus. And by the way, for you to know that schools are a good place to recruit people into extremism. Uh, he was radicalized by a cleric who sent him to study to Yemen. And he got furthermore radicalized, like Melvin mentioned earlier, and he came back ready to carry an attack in the American soil. Saliha, Saliha Ben Ali's son, a Muslim mother and a Parents for Peace member, um, went to see an imam to ask for help when she realized that her son was being radicalized and he became very hate hateful 
This clergy belittled her and he told her that there was nothing wrong with her son, that actually she should be praying more like her son. Saliha lost that battle and Sabri died in Syria fighting with ISIS. Lastly, one of our current helpline uh, case, and I cannot really get into the details because of confidentiality. This is a young convert uh, from a, a white Christian background who went to see an imam at the mosque in New York City to ask for help because they worried that their, that their son became hateful, radical. Uh, actually, this is a young man that is being helped you know, these days with, uh, with Mubin. So this imam turned their son against their parents instead of guiding and helping them. So today their son is in prison awaiting for a trial following his arrest by the FBI. So as uncomfortable this is, um, divinity schools across America need to be aware to address the role of clerics uh, in the radicalization process. At the same time, we have amazing stories of clerics who understand they have to be a guide, a guide that works with families, not against families. They can be a, a resource for helping families find healthy growth rather than healthy spiritual growth, rather than abuse someone's spiritual quest for an extremist path. So our call to action is for clerics to join our public health workers and service providers to be part of the solution to prevent violent extremism and radicalization. There is great opportunities for clerics, no matter their religion, to reflect on this issue. And we need not neutrality or passivity, but action and involvement. We have to be brave sometime and courageous to tell the truth. My Muslim grandfather from Morocco told me that the definition of an imam is one who guides someone out of the darkness and into the light. And this is what how our partners, Chaplain Mayfield and Chaplain Amin, who unfortunately couldn't join us today, this is what they do every day in their work in the state prison in Arkansas, where Carlos is. My ask for clerics is when you see a kid at risk is one, do no harm. Don't groom someone into extremism. Number two, redirect into a healthy training to you know, a healthy path when seeing early sign of radicalization. I hope Mobin can share his story about an amazing cleric from Syria who guided him. So this is really one of the example about guiding out of darkness and into the light. Number three, develop standardized training to understand the issue of extremism. And Parents for Peace is here to help. We are not a religious organization, but we are here to provide guidance out of the darkness and to the light. And we would love to partner with you to develop an awareness curriculum for people that are going into divinity programs so they can recognize radicalization and be helpful when someone is radicalized. Thank you to Maya. It was your vision and insight that helped us recognize the need of this kind of awareness in the divinity school. So thank you, Maya, for bridging this gap between Parents for Peace and Harvard Divinity School.
your work was really amazing. I know this is the beginning of a conversation and please don't hesitate to come to us after the panel or reach out to us via email um, you know, uh, after, after this conversation. Thank you, now the panel. Miriam and thank you Melvin and Monica and Maya and thank you to anybody else whose name starts with M in the <laughs> audience. We're very glad to have you here. My name and Mubin, sorry. My name is Susie Hayward. I am with the Religion and Public Life program here at the Divinity School. And relevant to this discussion, prior to coming to HDS, I was with the United States Institute of Peace for 14 years and so involved in in understanding what leads to violent movements, including those related to hate ideologies and what is necessary in order to move people towards peace and move structures towards peace. So I am very um, thankful to Maya for inviting me to be a part of this. And I just wanna give another shout out to Maya because she organized this panel so well with detailed runs of show, background, organizational memos, and I am so grateful for the care with which she pulled this together. So thank you again, Maya. She makes it easy to moderate. So I'm gonna begin by introducing our speakers and I'll facilitate a conversation uh, among us and then I will open it up for question and answer. So do be thinking about the questions that you want to ask of our panelists on this topic. So I'll begin at the end of the table here with Chris Buckley. Um, who is from Lafayette, Georgia, and is an Afghan, Afghanistan and Iraqi war veteran. Did I mispronounce that? <laughs> uh, just, a, just Afghanistan. Just Afghanistan, okay. Where he served with the Kentucky Army National Guard. When he returned from Afghanistan, he joined the Georgia White Knights as an Imperial Nighthawk because their anti-Muslim and racist values were consistent with his worldview after returning from war. Chris was encountered um, two fellows, Arno Michaelis, who is himself a former member of a white supremacist group, and Dr. Hival Mohammed Kelly, a Kurdish Muslim refugee, who spoke with him, engaged him on conversations, and, and helped him see the, the error of his ways and moved him in a different direction to spread awareness and educate the public about the dangers of white supremacist extremism. And Chris now works with Dr. Kelly on a program called Help, Heal, and Love, and has created a de-radicalization program called the Trauma and Recovery Program, which he works specifically with, with veterans, but also with wider populations um, to address all manners of hate and extremist ideology. We're glad to have you here with us, Chris. We're looking forward to hearing more about your story, as well as Mubin Sheikh's story. Mubin was born and raised in Canada, um, growing up with two conflicting and competing cultures, his family and the Canadian culture into which he was born and raised. At, facing an identity crisis at the age of 18, Mubin was sent on a path of violent extremism. But after six years, the attacks of 9-11 forced him to reconsider his view. He moved to Syria, where he had a careful study of Arabic and Islamic studies, and that began to bring, began to bring about his de-radicalization. After returning to Canada, he began working with the Canadian intelligence and became an extremism expert and consultant to 
numerous international organizations like the United Nations, governments, and militaries. And in fact, that is where I first met Mubin many years ago when I was with USIP. So he's currently now serving as a professor in the School of Public Safety at Seneca College. And I just learned he has a podcast that you should all subscribe to called Spies Like Us. I'm glad you're here, Mubin. And then finally, Dr. Christy Miller is joining us today. Dr. Christy Miller Anderson has extensive experience in the prison system. She has served with chaplaincy programs as well as with as the assistant warden of programming in the prison system where she where her leadership has included the development and expansion of prison vocational training programs and the enhancement of mental health faith based faith based education and reentry services. She's also worked in particular with incarcerated women populations giving um, them a platform to speak to female inmate populations and corrections leaders around the world. Christie's corrections experience includes specialty projects in the chaplaincy department at the famous Louisiana State Penitentiary, also known as Angola. We'll hear more about that. She now serves as research and programs officer for the Fourth Purpose Foundation, where she researches and helps implement best practices for prison reform. Christy, also relevant for a lot of us, holds a PhD in Old Testament and Hebrew scriptures. She also has 13 years of healthcare experience as a registered nurse and earned board certification status in psychiatric mental health. So thank you to all three of you for joining us here. And that's the data. But what I think we're all eager to hear more about um, are your stories, as Maya said. The stories are the most powerful way for understanding these really complex issues. So Chris, if I could start with you, can you tell us your story and how you got here sitting at a table in Harvard Divinity School? Yeah, um, pretty, pretty normal situation. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I grew up uh, very low-key racist family household so in public everybody was you know super polite and kind and courteous but behind a closed door a lot of racism and rhetoric and uh, my dad was a severe drug addict and, and violent individual uh, domestic violence spousal abuse abused me uh, physically mentally emotionally um, so you know there's that and then as I was growing up, uh, from the age of about five till 11 or 12, I was ex like severely molested by a close family member of the same sex. So that was like the first time I ever remembered hating anything was like the LGBTQ community because every same sex couple, especially males, were the one who hurt me, right? And, and I projected that, that trauma out because as an 11 year old kid, what else are you gonna do, right? So. Fast forward, uh, you know, I get jerked out of my, my childhood. Uh, I had a lot of friends that were kind of like my, my counterbalance to the extremism and the racism at home, a very diverse group of people. Uh, so they were that balance that I needed in my life to, you know, not fall into my, my family's footsteps. And I was involved in the Busing Integration Act in the mid nineties in Cleveland, Ohio, where they took a hundred kids from one side of town and a hundred kids from the other and just mixed them. So it was kind of like the city was segregated on its own anyway. I mean, I don't know why cities do that, but a lot of cities are kind of like segregated with more demographic on one side than the other side. And, and 
So that was when I started to experience the bullying and, and the attacks by, I'll just say non-whites because the west side of Cleveland was was very white and Hispanic. The east side was a very mix of like black and what we call others in like the prison system. So that would be like your Asians and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, I, I got to experience that. Um, you know, I'm reminded of like that new pair of shoes I got for, for high school uh, and how much they cost me. And, and I remember back the first time I ever got a new pair of shoes that were name brand, my grandmother saved a lot of, of money up because she knew how much they meant to me. It was the first day of school. Uh, I was probably 10, 11, and uh, it was a pair of Jordans, right? So I was like the, the coolest kid on the block. I had them, and I wore them to school that first day, and I, I was beat up, urinated on, and those shoes were taken, and I had to, to walk home with no shoes on. So um, I carried that with me for a long time. And then uh, – we moved to Southern Ohio. High school was really normal. Everybody was just like me. Uh, I played sports, so I was really good at baseball. I love baseball. It's the greatest game ever played on dirt. Um, and then, you know, I, I just kind of, I was trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life? My family was like, you need to go to college and play ball. And I was like, I'm 5'8". Like, I mean, like, how far is that really going to take me? But there was a lot of trauma and history with my family and there was some oppositional defiance going on. So when the, uh, the soldiers come to the, to the school to start recruiting for right out of high school, I kind of made a decision to just skip class and go take the ASVAB one day. And like, I did really good. Uh, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to be in Southern Ohio close to my family anymore. And from what I was gathering, all I got to do is just, carry this gun, you know, and go see the world. So I did that and I ended up in Afghanistan. Uh, October 31st of 2008, I, uh, I just had a shitty day. Right? Uh, my best friend, Daniel Wallace, and me were, were goofing around. We wanted to both get out of the vehicle. Uh, we both had to pee. Um, for the record, I have to pee right now. Uh, <laughs> It's a trauma loop. That's what it is. I, I don't really have to pee, but like I'm there. So uh, yeah, I'm glad we could lighten the mood a little bit. It was heavy for a second. So we, we, I smoked cigarettes. He chewed tobacco. Uh, we were on about 15,000 rounds of ammunition, 5.56, 50 caliber. So like there's no light in a cigarette in that vehicle. Um, so they come over the radio and they're like, hey guys, your load's shifting. Uh, if we go across this riverbed and we lose it, we're going to be here for days. And we have no close air support. So, I mean, in, in Army terms, that's, that's no go. No bueno. Okay. So we get out. Uh, he gets out before me. And I was like, dude, I can smoke out there. Just let me do it. And as soon as his feet touch the ground, he falls back. Right. And I lean out because I'm going to laugh at him for being a douche and not let me get out and smoke a cigarette. And I noticed that this half of his head was swollen and he was streaked like if he would have stomped on a ketchup bag, right across the dirt and i lost all my military bearing i jumped out no helmet left my rifle laying on the ground and i'm trying to hold his head together um for context imagine a broken vase inside of a pillowcase full of just 
hot hamburger meat. It's kind of the same thing. I grew up in the outdoors. I'm, I'm an outdoorsman. I love to hunt. I love to fish. It's part of what makes my life enjoyable. Um, I've never experienced a post-mortem reflex like this. One eye that was still around, like that wasn't out the backside of his head, was kind of looking around. And that was like a cue to me somehow that he's still with me. Um, he, his muscle spasms, he was trying to yawn, I thought. And uh, I even at one point tried to, to give some CPR. Um, and I jerked him back up into the vehicle and he was hit with the very first round of just some prey and spray. Guy didn't even look where he was shooting. He was just shooting over rocks at us. And uh, it was the first time I ever felt the same hatred I felt towards homosexuals. I hated Islam and everything it represented for taking what it took from me. Um, So I started this spiral of like numbing my pain with substances. Uh, and shortly after I come home, I was involved in a, a training accident. I flipped the vehicle, uh, army vehicle, a soft shell Humvee, one send over end and seven barrel rolls down the highway because the axle snapped. Because we have the best maintenance in the world, right? Uh, and that was my introduction to opiate painkiller. Once I started, the 80 milligram Oxycontins, 180 of them, three refills a month uh, and for a broken back. Uh, it just, there was no stopping, like I was gone. The trauma, the childhood, the molestation, the Muslims, everything just, it set me off and I wanted to eradicate that from the earth. Um, they represented everything that was bad in my life and, and I projected. So mixed that, the substance abuse with the PTSD, with the emotional and, and molestation. And, and we start to build this profile, right? Like if anybody cooks, you know that you don't have to have all the ingredients to make cupcakes, but the more ingredients you make, the better the cupcake comes out, right? So I had all the ingredients, every one of them. And uh, I got involved with some, some guys that kind of helped me fit in from leaving the military, the desire to be a part of, of something that gave me a purpose again. Because when you're a soldier at 17 and you are baptized into violence and dare I say it, radicalized to be able to do your job, numbed to the point of what combat is and what you'll experience and dehumanization of the enemy, that doesn't go away takes years to get to that point. I know when we went to go over overseas, it took me five months, four months to hit all the check marks and be able to be qualified to go overseas. And when I come home, within two weeks, I was at home, like at home with a beer and my shit, this big bag of problems that I carried with me. Uh, the accident happened, the drugs released that demon, and it was a monster. Um, I still won't talk about anything that I actually engaged in because they think there's a statute of limitations, but I don't know when it is. And uh, I was, it was the best version of me that I could be. And I was a violent extremist. And uh, I actually got so far involved in the organization in the four years that I was involved or three years 
that I rose to second in charge of the loyal white knights of the Ku Klux Klan for the entire United States. Um, I was introduced to Arno Michaelis, who introduced me to Dr. Kelly, who uh, helped me to learn to face my fears. And the first thing we focused on was the sobriety because without, if your mind's not clear, there's no way you can, you can clear your heart and your spirit. So in that time frame, I met Mubin who uh, shared his story with me and Arno shared his story with me and I, I found hope that I could change. And I realized that everything that I hated, everything I was mad at was just shit that was messed up with me, right? So I didn't hate homosexuals. I was angry and hurt with the one who harmed me. I didn't hate Muslims. I hated fucking ISIS, right? And there's a big difference between Islam and Al Qaeda, the Mujahideen, ISIS, and Mubin will go into that. And he, he showed me what it meant to be a good Muslim and uh, has severely altered my life to the point that I wanted to do what he did. I wanted to do what Arno did. And I wanted to dedicate my life to making sure that nobody else had to go through what I went through. And through that experience with Arno and Mubin, I met Miriam and Miriam watched me for a really, really long time before she ever like decided to let me volunteer. Like, Cause there's a lot of us out there, formers, formers that just don't do the work. And she wanted to make sure that we were gonna do the work. And remember I started to get better and she was watching and she was like, you can like, maybe help us understand. So I volunteered for a while. And uh, now I'm full-time with Parents for Peace. We sat down, we, we created a moral cognizant program where the person does the work and it's designed to be a peer-to-peer -peer counseling program because who better to lead the charge against extremism than extremists who left the extremist movement? Formers, right? Why is it so powerful when sexual trauma survivors help other sexual trauma survivors? Because the connection. So if anybody ever asked you why it's so important or how we know that formers have a role in this, it's because of us. We, we, we do it every day. We just don't run around and talk about it. We just do it, right? Um, so this program for the United States Army was designed with my story in mind. And it was really cool because being a recovered addict, being somebody who went through the military, and going through the similarities of extremism and how it's similar to addiction, that list is absolutely the same. So we created a 12-step style approach called the TRP, Trauma and Recovery Program, where the person leads the, the pace themselves. There's no, there's no agenda. You, you start with step one, and if step one's where you're at, then step one's where you're at. Stay there for months if you need to. You'll get to step two, and that's where the peer support counselor comes in. Uh, somebody like myself or Mubin or Arno or Mr. Bledsoe, who, who would might work with the family members or, or Miriam, who, who helps with family members and, and Emma, who takes intakes. Like there's a whole team that we've built around this. And uh, it's just a really amazing opportunity to just be at the tip of the spear on this with the amount of people that, that I am surrounded by today. So it's an honor and a privilege. And they say that when you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And uh, I haven't worked for about three years now. So thank you for the opportunity, Mr. Bledsoe, Miriam. And thank you, that's... Chris.
And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I am going to go use it. the bathroom now. Mubeen, tell us your story. Shalom Aleichem, Salaamu Alaikum. And since we're in the Christian context, I give you the greeting of the Christ. Peace and blessings be upon him and his mother. Amen. Peace be with you. Um, so really, everyone loves Maya. Maya, Maya, Maya. <laughs> No, no, we will. Each of us is going to do that. I mean, on point, you know, had our package for us, everything going. I like professional people, especially in like the, the uh, quick pace, especially like counterterrorism operations. It's very welcome when people are functional. I like that. So thank you. Um, Melvin, I mean, the godfather. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that somebody's tragedy you know, spurs a family to action the hard way. You get that phone call. You don't know what that phone call is going to be. I have kids. I worry. Where are they going to go? Where are they going to end up? Um, so you really have, your message has spread far and wide. It's moved people to doing things that haven't been done before. People are affected on, on a daily basis. Lives are changed on a daily basis. I can witness to that. We do, we do it directly. I do the direct interventions. I, we know these stories when, when parents are thanking us that, you know, I have a better relationship with my child now. It's all because of your sacrifice and Monica as well. So thank you both for doing what you're doing. And I echo what Chris says about um, not working a day in my life, but I do work, I promise. Um, so... I, uh, of course, to the institution, Harvard Divinity School, uh, God bless you. Thank you. Um, I am very honored uh, to be in such a, um, uh, such a location. Wow, this has a lot of history, and uh, I am really absorbing and taking it all in. Uh, really, my story, I like to divide into four parts. Um, let's call it my radicalization phase, or I guess my childhood phase. Uh, radicalization phase, a de-radicalization phase, and then what I'll call my professional phase. So my childhood, um, you know, I, I'm born and raised in Toronto, Canada. Uh, my parents are from India, um, very conservative uh, Muslim household. Interestingly, we didn't grow up a lot with politics. My grandfather was a police officer in India and uh, they didn't talk about politics. So a lot of times in Indian households, there's always gonna be a Pakistan, um, Kashmir type uh, local politics. Uh, but I never grew up with any of that. Um, I, so, but what, what Indo-Pakistani Indo Muslims, when they arrived in Canada and in, in our context, this was like the 70s, there was one generation prior in the UK uh, where, you know, around independence time, um, a lot of Indians went to the UK first. And my father was actually sent to UK to study, uh, to study in the UK with his father's brother. Um, so, uh, you know, he, my, my father grew up there and then uh, went back to India, got married, got a job offer, went back to India, got married, came to Canada. And uh, what they do is they replicated the system of Quran schooling that they were accustomed to themselves. 
And this is a very, I guess you could call it old school, but uh, very austere, abusive environment in which you are forced to learn how to recite the Quran. Um, because in the Islamic uh, religion, there are ritual acts that need to be you know, spoken in Arabic. So you had all these kids sitting on the floor at wooden benches, rocking back and forth and reading, reciting the Quran and not understanding a word of what we were reading. Boys were on one side, girls were on the other side. It was two hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and if you made a mistake, uh, you, were, you were beaten, you were slapped, punched, kicked, put into stress positions. The sadistic teacher that we had, you know, would hit you with the stick and sometimes the stick would break and then he would make you go and get a bigger stick. And if your stick was not big enough, he would make someone else go and get a bigger stick and then you would get hit by that stick. Contrast that to the public school system that I was going through, going to during the daytime, caring, nurturing environment, boys and girls mixing, no slaps, punches or stress positions. Um, and so this begins to lay the foundation uh, for an identity crisis that's going to hit me later on in my life. I get to middle school, you know, I'm such a nice kid. Um, you know, I would go home during lunch, like my house was really close by, didn't really, I was quite introverted, if you can believe it at the time. Um, the, our, the air cadets come by to the school, they give a little thing on, um, we have this, you know, this group, uh, you know, young kids you know, militarizing young kids. Um, and so I didn't join the air cadets. Uh, I got to high school and it just so happened that a kid in my class was in the army cadets. And he says, you don't want to join the air cadets, you want to join the army cadets. So I ended up joining the army cadets. And what this did is it created a new uh, sphere of influence on me. I had a, it had its own uh, individuals within it and it had its own uh, uh, value system. But I was also in high school and I had my high school friends and, um, and that also was a major sphere of influence on me. And this Indian kid, so by the time I get to grade 10, I think the army cadets is what did it for me, made me more um, sure about myself and confident and uh, really practiced a lot of it. And, and so suddenly I became um, no longer that quiet kid. So in high school, uh, grade nine was uneventful, but grade 10, started to make friends and I learned that these friends, you know, mostly white European backgrounds like Portuguese, Italian, we had Vietnamese, we had everybody. And, um, and then one of the things that I learned that these people did was attend house parties. Um, and what a glorious experience that was, right? Thankfully before the days of social media um, and and so I had this brilliant idea one time that, you know, my parents were out of town and I called everybody up and I said, hey, let's have a party at my house. And not realizing that my father had told his brother to check on the house while he was gone. So, of course, Murphy's Law, in the middle of the party, my uncle burst through the door and he's got, you know, he's got his hat on, his beard, his robe, scowling face and and my world comes crashing down before my eyes. And I realize the, 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 the trouble that I'm going to be in. So in, in, inside, I'm panicking and I'm thinking, okay, how can I salvage this? And, and so I started to think to myself, okay, I, I have to get religious. This is the only way that 
you know, the community and my family will accept me again and, and view me as, you know, reformed, I guess. And this was something that I could draw from, from my environment, um, you know, because conditioning is so much a part of it. And so, uh, you know, my parents had exposed me to, you know, this kind of religiosity. So I resolved that, okay, I'm going to get religious. And so in the summer of 95, I would end up going to, I spent two months in India, two months in Pakistan. And in Pakistan, I ended up in a city called Quetta and another town called Mastung. And if you know where that is on the map, it's like right by the federally administered tribal areas uh, near Afghanistan. And I had a, a chance encounter with the Taliban while I was there. So this Muslim kid, I'm referring to myself in the third person for a moment. This Muslim kid who is seeking this identity has already been exposed to some kind of militancy, if you will, through the army cadets. And, and you know, there is that adventurism that's also brought into it. Um, looking for this new identity, the Taliban to me were two in one, basically, right? That religious and that militant nature. And so I became enamored by them. I was greatly affected by them. And I, I knew I wanted to be just like them. Came back to Canada and things start to escalate. I, the group that I was with uh, for the nerds out there was Tablil Jamaat, but Tablil Jamaat is not a terrorist organization, not even close. They might be fundamentalists, yes, but they're completely apolitical, which is really smart about, uh, for them. Um, but my hyperpolitical thinking now was not good enough. It was not welcome in the Tablil Jamaat. So I left them and ended up with more, the term that we use now is more takfiri. Takfiri, like those who, uh, who, who basically excommunicate other people. So like, you're not Muslim enough, you're not Muslim enough, you're infidel, you're this, you're that. And so the way I like to, uh, my, the perfect analogy is like, you know, Sufis, Sufi Muslims are like the Jedi of the Muslim world. And the, the Wahhabis or Salafi Jihadis are like the Sith, okay? So I end up joining the Sith and a lot of uh, problems are happening in the world at that time. So in uh, 1996, uh, the invasion of Chechnya happened by the Russians. This is when the first jihadi videos start to come out. Uh, they came out on CDs. There was a series called the, it was called the Russian Hell series. Um, and it was a collection of attacks that these militants were making on Russian military forces. I saw my first beheading video. <clears throat> Wallahi, every single time I tell the story and I mention that, the flash of the blade on the guy's throat is, it comes up in my head. I'm, I'm desensitized, unfortunately, to it, uh, to a large extent. But so, so this was happening at the time. And then this obviously is important to mention. So I ended up getting married in 1998. It was actually a girl that I went to high school with, who I reconnected with, and she converted and uh, so, so it's important because I, I had a major intimacy need that was met at that time. Uh, I used to you know, jokingly call myself a born again virgin uh, because after I came back, I was like, okay, I'm going to be good from now on. And so uh, by a miracle of God, she accepted and um, we got married and it calmed me down a lot is really what's important about that journey. Uh, but I wasn't completely out of it um, because you, you invest so much time and energy in your sense of meaning, belonging, and identity, and your quest for significance and all those uh, psychosocial factors. Um, and then in 1998, a guy named Osama bin Laden came out with his fatwa, 
uh, against the Jews and Crusaders. And, uh, and we were like, okay, it's, you know, this is it, right? Like things, we knew things were coming. And of course the bombings happened uh, in Africa, but then 9-11 is what really, is what really did it. Uh, so, you know, it was Tuesday morning, I was driving to work, I'll never forget that day. And as you know, I heard on the radio that a plane had hit the building. And so the, the place that I was working at, you have to, when you drive in, like you kind of drive up the driveway to get into the parking lot and you see the building. And I was just like, the idea just came in. It's like, wow, what if like a plane hit this building right now? Like, that would be crazy. And so, um, so at this time, you got to understand, like I am looking very Muslim. So like I have a big beard, I'm wearing a black turban, long robes, um, and really to emulate the Taliban that, that, uh, that I had met. And I did that for almost 15 years. I, I looked like that. Uh, I, it's finally when I came back down to earth in about 2009 that, that I got rid of all that. And it's good for people who want to do it. It just wasn't for me anymore. I felt that I was forcing a costume onto me. And I think this is what a lot of Muslims uh, go through, especially in this society where they're like right at the cusp of that sudden shift from ancient societies that have been the same way for hundreds of years. And then suddenly there's this complete shift uh, to what is seen as like the, the polar opposite. So there are a lot of identity issues and integration issues that come up and create these uh, deviant and malfunctions, if you will, um, as outputs in, in people's lives. So, um, so just coming to 9-11, and so that really impacted me. And I thought to myself, you know, I understand jihad. You know, jihad is a noble tradition. It is the Islamic war tradition consisting of rules of engagement. Uh, so, you know, terrorism is to jihad what war crimes are to ROEs. So I thought to myself, I don't know Arabic. I didn't study properly. So I thought, all right, I need to go and study the religion properly. So I would end up moving to Syria in 2002. This is before the war, so don't freak out. Um, and I ended up going to Syria and I would spend two years there studying Arabic and Islamic studies in more significant depth. And this is when I was also really um, exposed to the Sufis and um, Sufi thinking. And um, what I saw at the time, I actually, I used to wear glasses, got laser eye surgery, really good. Um, I wore glasses and the sheikh said to me that, you know, I'm going to give you a new pair of glasses by which to see the world. And so his, even his approach was very, very good. You know, you start with the Quran, you go to the Sunnah, then you go to the Sirah, which is a biographical material. Then you go to the scholars or the scholars. I mean, they're in there all, of course, throughout because the scholars will give you the exegesis of the Quran, the tafsir, how to interpret verses, how to look at verses. You don't just read one verse and then extract a law out of that there may be other verses that you need to read and so and so on and um it really completely changed my my understanding of how things should be done and it made a lot more sense that um you know you take you take the way of mercy um over wrath and this follows a very famous uh, hadith qudsi where um you know we believe allah says that uh, the first thing that God created was the pen. And, um, and the pen asked, because these are talking pens, and the pen asked, it's symbol symbolic, right? what shall I write? And, uh, and God says, write destiny. And says, what shall, what's the first thing I shall write of destiny? And God says, write, my mercy prevails over my wrath. So had a newfound appreciation 
for even rights that Muslims have in the West. Uh, I was living in Syria, a real police state, uh, terrible horror stories that I read, uh, you know, that I heard about uh, from people. And so I, there are things happened. I just kind of got fed up at the same time the war in Iraq started in 2003. Uh, and I was like, you know what, it's time to go home. So I come back in 2004 and literally the first week that I'm back in the papers, the first Canadian arrested on the recently minted terrorism laws, Momin Kawaja has been arrested in connection with the 2004 London fertilizer bomb plot a year before the subway bombings, uh, the underground bombings happened. And I saw a reference to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service in the article, and I thought, this is a mistake. This is not right. Like, I know the family. At least I thought I knew him. And uh, I called up the, the Intelligence Service, excuse me, and I said, uh, hey, I'm like, I'm reading about this guy in the paper. Like, I know the family. It must be a mistake. Like, and they're like, well, it's out of our hands. It's no mistake. But the fact that you're calling us about him, we would like to come and talk to you. <laughs> All right. Um, so I was like, oh, um, okay. Um, Momin Kawaja sat next to me in the, the madrasa, of the Quran school that I went to as a kid. I used to play Hot Wheels cars with him and his brother. And so I thought the father is such a nice brother, such a nice brother. He taught in the madrasa, you know, Islamic history and stuff like that. And so... Uh, so the, the intelligence service approached me basically, and they liked the way that I was thinking. I thought you were going to hold up for like two minutes. Um, and so they, they liked the way of my thinking and the fact that I looked the way that I did, the fact that I had the street cred that I did allowed me to be able to infiltrate, um, the networks that were out there. So for the next two years, um, I was operational, uh, infiltrating online password protected chat forums, as well as human networks. Um, and one day, you know, they told me again, here's another investigation. There are these guys tell us what they're, what they're doing and what they're up to. And so they, the way the Intel service is very smart, you know, they don't tell me anything, what they know. I am a trusted source. I need to go in with fresh eyes and ears. So one day uh, I get friendly with these guys and they, they let on that they have this training camp, that they have a bunch of guys that have already been selected to come to this camp and they want to bring these guys up to a level of readiness so that they can commit these attacks. And so I was like, okay. And uh, so they recruited me into their group. And so that investigation ran six months, um, all the cool, like the movies, spy stuff. Um, and they got arrested. And then it was four years of court after that, five legal hearings in which I just, so what happened is my identity became exposed. Um, I, I had to follow through with the case. I could have walked away from it and just remained the gray guy that nobody knew and probably thought might be a terrorist, but doesn't realize that no, he's actually working against the terrorists. So don't judge books by their cover, especially when you see Muslim people with beards and turbans. Don't immediately think terrorists. Don't also think spy, but I mean. <laughs> so, uh, so, so there was a lot of fallout from that, understandably from the community and, you know, oh, you were a spy and da, da, da. And unfortunately, there was a lot of denial that was present in the Muslim community at the time. And I make excuses, you know, I, I, it's the community has been under siege since 9-11. There's been this hyper surveillance infrastructure that's been focused on Muslims. 
sometimes, you know, more so than other more more uh, pressing threats that the country faces. Um, and, and so, uh, but from that experience, uh, you know, I learned a lot of how the intelligence services work, how police work, how these things are perceived in society, but what about that person that's being arrested? And I saw myself in, in these guys that I ended up um, uh, helping get arrested. Uh, and I felt sorry for them. I did, you know, I mean, you know, where were their parents? In fact, uh, hey, this is really interesting that this is something that I learned years after but that the intelligence services actually went to the parents and told them that, listen, this is what your kids are up to. And the parents were just like, ah, scoffing and just like not taking it seriously. Um, so, so I know the authorities, you know, did their due diligence and whatever. And sometimes, unfortunately, uh, people have to learn the hard way. And, and this is one of the reasons why we are dealing with cases of, of young people, young kids uh, who have been arrested, like Miriam was talking about, uh, you know, uh, the, that case, um, you know, where I feel so sorry for this kid, you know, he's like, he, his life is not over, but like, he, he just doesn't realize how much his life has changed forever. Um, and he's still very much in that, you know, still going through his developmental stages. So in, in this time, of course, um, the case was done in 2010, the war in Syria kicked off in 2011, started to see the rise of ISIS by 2012, 2013. Uh, ISIS declares their caliphate in mid-2014, and then the attacks in the West start to happen. And so this is when uh, I was already online. I was, I had my own profile. I had three phishing profiles, I'll call them, uh, that I used to infiltrate into ISIS networks, screenshotted everything. Um, some of that information was sent up for targeting, and some people got tracked, and some people got whacked. And uh, I have no qualms about that because uh, as a Muslim, I learned, in fact, for the record, I was the first one to refer to ISIS as the Khawarij. Uh, Khawarij is a, a traditional Islamic term, basically zealots or terrorists. The Prophet, alayhi salam, uh, warned us about these people that they would be overtly hyper worshipers. The Prophet, alayhi salam, told his companions that if you compared your worship to their worship, you would belittle your worship because they were hyper worshipers. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ said about them that they would recite the Quran, but it would not go beyond their throats, okay? Uh, and that they would leave Islam like an arrow pierces through its target. Um, so I personally don't consider ISIS to be Muslims. I know they are takfiris, and then I would get accused of being takfiri myself, but. I am not takfiri. I, I take a, a wide tent approach uh, to the Muslim sects and non-Muslim religions and faiths. We can still believe what we believe in our ideology, uh, but it doesn't mean that we can't unite on common beliefs because, I mean, especially the three, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, and others that are related in values. There are, and I'm gonna close with this, there are common things. We know we call it the golden rule, bless you. Uh, we call it the golden rule, right? Uh, and this is because these are common things that we all have among us. So I think now in terms of our call to action and the importance of involving clerics and how toxic clerics, you know, are misguiding people. And it, verily the prophet, salam, he said that the people would be misguided by scholars, by clerics, um, not common people. And so there is a responsibility by the clerics um, and other professionals that have capacity 
depending on what you're doing to do something about it. It's sad that we, we do hear about parents trying to go to imams and the imams not knowing what to do. They, they don't want to say the J word because they fear they might be put on a list or they might be, you know, put on something. And so these are also, I think, structural pressures that need to be dealt with. It is a little bit of a mess, unfortunately, but I mean, these are the human systems that we live in and we have to remind ourselves that these are human systems. Uh, only God is, God is greatest, right? Like we are flawed. We are created with flaws. We are going to make mistakes. We have to, we have to toil. We have to suffer, right? We were just talking to a Buddhist brother outside and like they say, life is suffering, right? So, so at the end of it, I'm, I'm super uh, thankful and, and honored to be working with this team and all the people involved. And there's so much work for us to do. So please reach out to Miriam and uh, let's keep this conversation going. God bless. Thank you. Thank you to both of you for sharing your stories. And we're already pulling out some common themes that we hear about um, the need for community and belonging, the experiences of trauma and violence, the normalization of violence that um, happens through various means, including the military. Um, concern about injustices that are happening worldwide. So we're gonna come back to that a little bit in the conversation, but first, Christy, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the work that you do and how you got into it, but also where the prison system in the US fits in to, to all of these conversations. Yeah, so just a, a little of my story. I grew up in the deep South, I'm from rural South Louisiana and uh, grew up in a context of violence and poverty and uh, racism. Uh, objectification of women, all that stuff kind of a lot of times will go together. Uh, not a lot of aspirational goals in, in my childhood. And just from an early age, just had a, a yearning uh, to know God and a, a yearning for the spiritual. Um, as an older teenager, I would have wanted to dedicate my life vocationally in ministry. Because um, absolutely no no opportunities for that in that context. Uh, doors shut tight for that, and uh, knew no woman that had went to seminary or or served in any kind of ministry position. Uh, was just unheard of in that in that world. Um, so I became a nurse, and nursing was my ministry. Worked with uh, women in crisis, even through that. Uh, worked at a women's hospital uh, on an oncology unit where women were facing life limited cancer diagnoses. It was also the area of the hospital where women came if their pregnancy was not going to end well, and there was going to be a loss of life. Um, so uh, fast forward about 15 years, and things were starting to change a little bit for women to be able to um, serve in ministry uh, a little bit <laughs> in that context. And I ended up going to seminary, um, earned two master's degrees and a PhD, and trying to figure out what I was going to do with all that. But uh, was asked to go into a, a women's prison to start a seminary program that would train lifers to be ministers to their peers. And that program had been started in Angola, which is the world's largest prison system there in South Louisiana, uh, had been started in that prison with great success. And so they wanted to replicate that with the women. So um, I said, well, I've never been in a prison before ever, and, but I know how to work with women in crisis, and so I and I and I wanted to teach, so that opportunity gave me uh, just I was able to do the lion's share of teaching in that role, and um, just from day one I knew this is where I'm supposed to be. 
Uh, my heart was just woven with those women. And uh, many of them are just some of my most favorite people on the planet to this day. And uh, many of them will draw their last breath behind those bars. And um, I love them deeply. Um, I did chaplaincy projects at Angola as well. And um, just have a passion to, to try to work in the U.S. prison system. Our prison system is really broken. Uh, we do not have good outcomes, not for inmates nor for staff. And I, I want to be part of changing that. So now I dedicate uh, my career to uh, researching prison reform and working on uh, prison reform. Uh, you probably know this, but out of the nearly 2,000, 2 million people that are behind bars in this country, about 93% of them are men. So most of our work and resources that we create, create are for men, but what just puts a fire in my belly is that 7%. And so everything that I work on, every resources, the resources I develop, the programs that we do behind bars, I'm always thinking about how this will trickle down on those women I left behind in that prison. And so I'm happy today to speak uh, to you about uh, prison and uh, specifically about uh, prison cha chaplaincy. Great, thank you. So it won't surprise you that I, I wanna start with a question about religion, um, given where we are. And that is Scott Appleby uh, coined the term ambivalence of the sacred in, in one of his books in the 90s, which speaks to the ways in which religion shows up in really complex ways and can lead people towards extraordinary acts of violence and lead people towards extraordinary acts of self-sacrifice for the sake for the sake of good. And I think in these stories, we've we've heard a little bit about the ambivalence of the sacred showing religion showing up in these really complex ways, particularly in your story, Nadine. But I want to ask Chris, um, it, with respect to your story and with um, white supremacy and, and white nationalism in the U.S., how do you see religion and thinking about religion, you know, with respect to not just the ideas, but including the ideas, but also community rituals and so on, showing up in these really complex ways? So initial first thought that comes to my head is like, you know, that one time in like the 50s when we added under God and in God we trust to our money and we became a Christian nation founded on Christian principles that never really happened. Um, so the Klan is one of those things that uses very isogesic biblical verses. Uh, Adam, the name from what we were told, which I'm sure is probably wrong, but meant to show blood in the face right so how could adam have been anything other than a white man you know i mean like when we get mad our face gets red we, you know so that's one of the ideas uh the thing is that you know yeah we are his battle axes and weapons of war uh through him we would change the nations things like that just very isogesic terminology and bible verses um you know and they they do this through the same channels with nationalism like you know my, my my mentor arno tells me you know in the very beginning there's a difference between nationalism and patriotism right nationalism is anything that isn't white christian and pro-american everybody else is second class and that's the nationalist idea um you know america right uh so you know i mean just as much as it's it's a factor 
in what goes on behind our churches. Like, you know, like as Mabin was saying, you know, our pastors, it says the same stuff in the Bible, the false prophets, you know, the, the guys who come to, to teach the, 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 the bad version of Christianity, like that Westboro Baptist Church bad, right? So like, that's, that's what we deal with every day and Ruby deals with it in Islam. And so like religion is one of those tools that might be the way that we can get our hooks in, right? The imams are gonna use that hyper craving religious tool to, to focus because he might not be able to get to him through family or through drugs or through this or through that. So with like the Nash, the NSM, the, the, the neo-Nazis, they use the nationalism, right? Because like everybody wants to be like a proud American and you know, the only real proud Americans are, are white proud Americans and you say you're mitigated, you're second class, like all these just ramblings that they, that they use to just get these kids involved. And you like, you know, Arno says, show me a kid that's pissed off and I'll give you an extremist. You know, it's just finding out what they're pissed off about use that, like that fire in their belly, and the other stuff will come later, right? But so religion's a very important tool because a lot of religious extremism out there, and people think of the term religious extremism, and they think, oh, Islam, Islamists, but there's there's Christian extremists out there too. Um, and I just, I'm not going to name any of them by, but I mean, like, you know, right? So <laughs> I'm just going to stop, and uh, I'm going to hand it off because... And what about on the other side of the story? What, how does religion show up in the, in your own story of moving out of these movements and, and some of the tools that are necessary to help people move away from hate and to deal with the trauma and so on? You've seen it showing up on that side of the equation as well? So I'm a Viking, so not really. Uh, and I just do that because it's against the grain. To be like, hey, white supremacists took Thor's hammer and like Odin and all the symbols and runes. So I'm kind of like just taking it back. You know what I mean? So not really so much for me, but it's definitely there's a place for it. There's there's a place for people who were involved in religious extremism and they need the the guidance of appropriate pastors and appropriate people who understand the religion to help guide them out of this mess that was made for their religious beliefs to begin with. Like I mean, like, I don't have any business talking to somebody who was a religious extremist because I don't understand what the, what it is that they're believing to begin with. But like Mubin does and, and you do. And there's all these people out here who understand. And, and that's why this network that we're building, this team, this this call to action for everybody to come to the table is so important because it's not my slice of the pie. But there are people who who that is their bag. That is their job. You know, so, I mean, I, I, as a Klansman previously, like, yeah, there was a lot of religion involved and it took unlearning that and just kind of changing my whole belief system. And, you know, I, I was kind of traumatized by Christianity and, and religion. So uh, I imagine that it's kind of the same for a lot of people who get out of religious extremist groups, kind of. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Christy, I wonder if you could talk about how this shows up in the prison system, the ambivalent, complex ways in which religion shows up. Yeah, first the good side. Um, it's a religion, I would say it's a lifeline in, in the prison context. It's well documented the role of faith in helping process trauma and work your way out of trauma. So that's huge. 
Um, I want to speak specifically in the context of people who have long sentences. A lot of my work has, has been with lifers. And uh, when you meet someone who's already served 25, 35 years, uh, most the common narrative with that is their family is long gone and there's no outside connection anymore. So to be in a prison with um, absolutely nobody in the world knowing that if you're alive or dead or even caring and the fact that um, you are among the despised in our society and finding a place that this is also, this has been my experience and it's also been well-documented by researchers. Byron Johnson and Baylor's done a work on this. Uh, Shad Marina, Marina in um, Belfast has documented this of the role that faith, faith plays in that situation of helping that person find a new identity, helping that person find uh, a way to recode their experiences so that good can come out of it. Faith being a, an avenue to let them find a place of being forgiven and accepted and worthy and to find purpose and meaning in their life even now. And so for me, you know, just imagine a lot of the, the people that I've worked with maybe doing their crime at 18, 19 years old um, and now being 55, 60 years old and coming to a place of peace and um, purpose in that and in, in being synced, understanding that they have uh, worth. And every person that has come to that place almost all the time, there's just a just extreme deep faith um, that goes along with that. And, and uh, there's a quote by Thomas Aquinas that says, uh, the splendor of a soul in grace surpasses the beauty of all created things. And these kinds of people I'm talking to you about that really have found peace and meaning in that context are the kinds of people that that's, that's what I say, like you are a soul in grace and I want to pull up the chair and let you tell, tell me your story because I, I think what you have is what everybody wants. So really amazing ways I've seen it play. But yes, in harmful ways too, um, as a prison chaplain, uh, one of our roles is to make sure that the constitutional rights of the inmates are respected and they're allowed to worship uh, freely. And so as a chaplain, you have to uh, make that happen, provide those spaces. So you have different faith groups that you're working with. And obviously you can't be an expert in all of that. So you have to find partner uh, chaplains and, and, and volunteer lay people to help uh, allow those worship experiences to happen uh, behind the bars. And uh, so it's important. It's important for different chaplains of different faiths to model that kind of uh, healthy relationship that we are here. Yes, we can stand confidently in our, in our theology, but we also are gonna respect each other. We're also gonna work for the wholeness uh, for the whole community. And so watching for that and whenever you, and so you, you need to highly vet your volunteers that you're letting come in because this is a vulnerable group. We may not think about people in prison being vulnerable in this sense, but they are desperate for hope. They are desperate for a way to have a sense of power and control. They are desperate for a lifeline to the outside. So that volunteer coming in has all of those things to offer and they can use it for harm. And so it's very, you have to be very careful to make sure that those volunteers are coming in, that, that they understand we are working for wholeness and healing. And uh, like you said, just uh, the golden rule. 
And um, so we do our best to vet, but then we have to watch the fruit. So if we notice that the people that's under that teaching, if, if their hate talk is increasing or if we're seeing more division, then we're seeing unity. Um, if we're seeing levels of anger rising instead of uh, levels of peace, then we need to recognize that, that we are responsible for making sure that we're protecting, protecting the people in our custody. Thank you. Um, my next question, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna open it up to others, but I would love to hear from all of you about what you see as effective interventions. And I mean both in terms of de-radicalization, the, the, the ideas, the ideologies that, that drive hate, but also with respect to we've heard a lot about some of the systems and structures that um, that don't that, that create trauma, that, that don't allow for proper healing. So also in the process of addressing some of these unjust system structures, global injustices that, that drive people into these movements as out of frustration, out of a desire to change the systems. I wonder what you've seen as the effective ways that, that people can intervene and try to steer people off course. I'll jump at that. Uh, you know, there is a reality check that we have to make for ourselves. And that is that the world is a tumultuous place. It's, it's not supposed to be, for those of us who believe in a paradise, it ain't here. The world is the world, right? Um, it's funny, the, the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ who said, you know, dunya sijnul mu'min wa jannatul kafir. The world, dunya is not just the world, but like worldliness or materialism, you could even specify it, is a prison, is a, is a prison for the believer and a paradise for the disbeliever. So, you know, I start with that reality check of you are not going to solve all the world's problems. You will never eradicate poverty. You will never eradicate racism tribalism, these things are, I think, coded within us to be like this. Again, from the Islamic perspective, very quickly, sorry, I don't want to be preachy, preachy, but there's a, all right, there's a, a passage in the Quran where that God tells the angels, look, I'm going to create human beings. And the angels say, oh God, why are you going to create this thing that spreads mischief and sheds blood? And God says, hey, I know what you do not know, right? So basically, shut up, angels. You know, I know what I'm doing. Uh, and we, we, so we are, we are created like this. And so we will have these dysfunctional responses. And I think the point of all of this is when we find ourselves in that situation, how we make things better and how we help things along and people along. So there is that reality check. In terms of what are effective uh, interventions that can be done, and you know, they, you can look at it from you know many different levels, like state level, and you know, the world is such a big place, uh, and some countries they control everything, so you, you can't really do you know community-based stuff. It's all government-centric. So there are different contexts in which interventions um, can be applied. In our Western context, where we have all these opportunities and abilities, then I think the most effective ones are those which I think at its core recognize the inherent humanity of a person. 
whatever your belief, we all believe that this is, uh, especially for us who believe in that one creator of the universe, um, even the person that you meet, believer or not believer, there's still a creation of that creator. Whether they're on your path or they're not, it doesn't matter. And we believe, at least, you know, Sufi tradition is always about recognizing that which is created in a person. So I think establishing the inherent humanity, and you don't even have to believe in God to recognize someone's basic humanity. So that's something that we can all agree on. And so I think if we, effective interventions are those things which resonate with the basics of human beings. And then you can get into like tactics and techniques, peer mentoring. If, you conv if the person realizes that you're there, not out of any benefit that you're going to get out of it. If they know that they're there sincerely to help the person, those are things that's, that's just one thing. I mean, you can go into that and you, you know, establishing emotional states with the person, also looking at their family structure, looking, you know, doing like the ring model, right? Going outwardly, like, do they need, you know, extra like vocational training or educational support, et cetera. If you realize what the needs of the person are and you structure your interventions around those needs, then it will be effective. It will be successful. Thank you. Chris, anything you want to add from what was effective when Arno and Dr. Kelly intervened with you? I think it's, I think if you find the trauma, find the trauma, address that, provide a, a, a point of healing, right? So like, Everything that we go through is going to be a trauma, whether it's emotional, physical, or mental, right? So when you, when you don't heal from those, then you kind of, you change, right? And you start to get angry. And with the people I work with, like, it's just like, I find the therapeutic alliance, uh, build that relationship, that organic and natural uh, relationship, which breeds trust. Once you have trust, then you can kind of move into the dark hidden away parts that you don't talk about. You just, you're using as a way to numb. Um, and if there's substance abuse issues, then you gotta, you gotta deal with that too. And um, for, you know, like we do a lot of work with like the interfaith community because a lot of the extremists that we come across are religious ideologies. And I think that one of the most successful things you can do in an intervention is know when it's not your, it's not your expertise, right? I'm not gonna go down, down the hall and, and tell a PhD how to teach their class. But like, there's things that I do know and I don't need to be a PhD to know. I lived them. Lived experience is always better than book experience because your book experience is from somebody's lived experience. Um, and I think that when you put together a very focused intervention around the individual and not around a curriculum, right, then you make that person feel important. And when they feel important, they don't need to feel important everywhere else through groups or through ideologies. They can, they can really work on them. And when you heal from trauma, you can, you can move on with your life and, reintegrate into society as a healthy member. Thank you. 
Christy, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to you, and I'd love to, for you to share the story that you were sharing with me over email about the the incarcerated folks in Angola and how they yeah. work together to try to transform the culture there. But even as she's talking, I want anybody who has a question, please raise your hand, and Maya will come around with the microphone. So we'll get to you right after Christy finishes yeah. speaking. So Angola was known as the bloodiest prison in America. And it was just out of control. A, a warden came there in 1995 uh, from his own state, from his own faith perspective, wanted to just infuse the place with dignity and hope for an opportunity for the men. But he also just needed to survive and wanted the men to survive. There was just multiple murders every year and uh, just really the place was out of control, intense violence. Uh, that prison is so transformed. I mean, you can Google it. You'll see lots of documentaries that's been done, lots of books that's been done, full-scale research projects that's been done on the transformation of Angola. And I would say um, it was kind of by accident because, again, Burl Kane, the warden, was, was trying to survive, trying to help the men survive, and he, he felt like, you know, if I can get them chasing success, maybe they'll stop hurting each other. Uh, but what he did accidentally, now that I've studied better models, I see a formula. So this is, this is what I would say, um, how this is what we want to scale of, of changing uh, a culture of extremism, violence in prisons, gang saturation, all of that. Number one is flood that prison with pro-social influence from the community. Open the doors of the prison, let the community in. And that may seem very simple, but prisons by and large do not let that happen. They're not, they're the least transparent institution in, in America. So get positive people flooding in and, and influencing that population. That was the number one. Number two was let uh, those pro-social people who are already dedicated to that population begin to start uh, providing leadership training and let people who are rising to the top and showing to be agents of change from within, let them influence them and give them better training. And that's what Pearl Kane did with education opportunities, um, just and and just really letting some some high quality people come in and invest in that population because the skills and the abilities and the giftedness is there, so it just needed to be cultivated, and he let that happen. The third thing is then the administration has to let these leaders then lead. It's what Henry Nowen calls wounded healers, like you guys said. When you come from that context, you have that lived experience. And about 300 men in that institu in that prison really transformed the place that was almost 6,000 people living there. But that group really just led the way, but the administration let it happen. And that's also not something that usually happens in prisons. And so one of the stories I was telling Susie was, I mean, I could tell you so many today, but I wanted to tell you one because it's about a person we're actually trying to hire for our foundation. His name is Keith Morris. He did his crime at 18, 19 years old. He was already a father when he did that crime, and he had met his father in prison. So you see the cycle. Uh, went to prison, spent a lot of years just uh, in lockdown, staying in the gang and violence, uh, came to his point of faith and change, ended up going to the seminary, becoming a peer minister. And the research calls this self-projects, where these men they want to impart and make a difference in other people. So, and they, they have to create that themselves. So he created a program called Malachi Dads because he didn't want his kid to follow him in prison. And it's a, it's a program by which incarcerated men can learn to parent well from prison and try to be a positive influence in their child. That, that 
program that started there at Angola, tremendously effective in Angola, is now taught in most states in America and in about 16 foreign countries as well. He did that right there in prison. Another thing that he did was he created, he, he worked with a group of athletes and some volunteers that were coming from uh, Willow Creek Church out of Chicago coming down to Angola. And they did this big event where they brought athletes in. So that could be a very inspirational um, touch point for inmates. And this Keith, this inmate, became good friends with Ben Watson. I wanted to share Ben Watson since he's, he was a, uh, a Patriot player, tied in for, for the, uh, the Patriots. Anyway, Keith became friends with Ben Watson. And you, uh, Ben Watson wrote a book a few years ago, Under My Skin. And it was uh, uh, after the Ferguson riots and wanting to uh, just create some conversations for people to talk about race issues. And Keith, this is another just example of what these guys, these leaders were doing to change the culture in that prison. He started create. he took that book and he started creating uh, restorative justice circles. Men of about five or 10 people to read that book and start having conversations. And, and just like this, we're, we're okay in here, but there's things that, that, that create angst in me and I can't really dis, dis, discern why. And it was from the systemic racism. They just had great talks and great, great healing came from that. And that's just one example. But that prison, there were no gangs. There, were, there was no racial tension. The peer ministers were peer, you had Christian peer ministers, you had Islamic peer ministers, you had Jewish peer ministers. They shared office space. They worked together. They created events for their community. Just such a model for, for the community. And it, it was started from within. So that outside influence but then they had to take it and own it and lead, lead their own population out of that violent culture. Thank you. We're marching quickly towards the end of our hour here and I wanna make sure we get the voices from our audience members. So Maya, what I'm gonna recommend is that we collect a few and then we give an opportunity for our panelists to speak to us. Uh, thank you so much um, for your service and work and just for the time. I'm Ilana, I'm at the Kennedy School of Government. Um, and I think it appears to me that um, in the U.S. today, there's not one religious group that doesn't consider itself marginalized. Even if you look at Christians, a lot of them feel in, in the progressive, powerful society that we live in and that Christians are also marginalized. So it's, there's not one religious group that feels as though they're not marginalized. And it's also not one religious group that has ownership over extremism um, or violent extremism. So that, I think that shows up in every religious group, and I don't want to villainize any one religion. I think that's really important. I also think it's a mistake to put disengagement and de-radicalization on formers or religious leaders or um, educators. I think it's really about the, like, the society that we live in that's very stratified. Um, and I wonder what the systemic changes that are needed, the communal changes, the um, the local changes that need to take place, and then what are the interventions um, that are not person-to-person -person reaching out, but it's more communal. Um, and if you've seen any programs or interventions that have been successful or deserve amplification. Thank you. So and Professor Haywood would love your thoughts on that as well. Yeah. And we had another question over here, Mike. I know an organization called Parents for Peace. That's pretty, <laughs> pretty cool. They do some cool stuff. Hi. 
Hi, thank you so much for sharing your lived experiences. It was really informative and powerful. And as a current 18 year old, I've seen a lot of extremism be fueled in online spaces, like for instance, gaming on social media, especially among youth. Um, like people are having entryway points into extremist beliefs like white supremacy through these online spaces. And so I was wondering if what your all's responses have been to this, like bringing your advocacy into digital spaces. And if you know of any other interventions that are related to um, doing that. So yeah, thank you. Okay, we'll do it in three. Hi, I have a question actually for um, Dr. Christine Anderson in particular, because you had spoken about as a chaplain, um, you need to provide all faith um, openings for all faiths, uh, people to worship in all of the faiths. And then we also spoke about, I don't remember if it was you, Chris, or Mubin, about people in prison are so vulnerable and um, desperate for hope, and which are also some of the traits that lead to extremism. And so I'm wondering in the prison system, how, I mean, I assume you can't, I guess I'll just ask the question, um, with this vulnerability and by allowing or wanting to make sure you serve all faith communities, extremism is also an uh, extreme form of religion and you find that in the prisons. I wonder, I guess, how to combat that or do you, do you understand? Yeah, okay. Great, thank you. So going beyond person to person to systemic changes, the online spaces and their contributions and then this question of religion as a solution. Is so I'm gonna answer yours, all right? So the first thing society has to do since we're talking about society is destigmatize extremist ideologies. You, 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 you can't stigmatize it and then wonder what you can do to fix it when you're scared to even address it, right? Um, the other thing is like, it's, it's unfair to put it on formers or clinicians or, you know, I mean, who else would do it? You know, I mean, there, that's the problem we run into in society is there is no subspecialty around it. So instrumental change is let's create the subspecialty around extremism and treat it just like we would addiction sexaholics, uh, gambling, and family marriage, you know, you, there has to be a subspecialty created around it. And that's not going to happen until we stop looking at the guy who's sitting by himself and being like, oh, he's, he's just a white supremacist. He's just trash, like, right? So there's problems that there, there's mental issues that are, that are going into this. It's, it's an indoctrination. It's, it's not just that this guy, is, is a, I mean, there's, there's, they're a lot more scarier if we don't address them and we don't humanize them. So by not addressing them, we dehumanize and that just creates that fuel for anger and resentment and the need to retaliate against society as a whole, right? So while it might not be up to formers or up to clinicians, it's up to all of us to come together and figure out who best to, to serve each, each intervention. Um, and with the online space, 
I, I think that we really nailed that down at Parents for Peace that during COVID, you know, and the restrictions that, that we were facing on being able to gather in, in large groups and, and, you know, we became a lot more prevalent online. And, and during that time, we really started to focus on what groups are out there, what they're doing, how they're doing it. Naveen was like on it the, the whole time, uh, focusing on things. I know I, I, I troll certain extremist groups online to figure out how they're changing their ideas uh, and, and just learning to, to adapt and grow with them. Uh, I, have, I have a 10-year-old and his favorite game in the world is, is Fortnite. Uh, we had to we had to remove that from him because there is a lot of bad actors in that online uh, communication forum where you know I, I just hear stuff because I make him you know use his headphones but he also comes through the TV and I'm like whoa what did you just hear all right that game's gone right so I think that being aware of of what your friends are doing and and man we get busy we get busy okay but it never goes more than a week that I don't reach out and be like, hey buddy, how you doing, man? What you got going on? Make that time to check on your friend because when it happens, if God forbid it happens that, that your friend becomes involved in extremism, you're gonna remember, damn, I could have I just checked. I could have just asked a question, you know? So, I, I mean, I hope that addressed some of it. And Mubin's probably got some better answers than, than you know, the, the rest of the panel. But. And Mubin and Christy, I'm sorry about this, but I'm gonna have to ask you to keep it to a minute, thank you. Okay, we're on crunch time. Um, yeah, so we would rather it not be left to X or Y or Z, but unfortunately, nobody's really doing it at that level. And so necessity has become is the mother of all invention. And so we it kind of centers around us. But I agree with you, if we could offset it to everybody, teachers do their thing, just be a teacher, provide support for your student, you will prevent them actually from getting into extremism. Um, that's a short answer. I'm sorry, but, uh, online spaces, I mean, the online space, it's a, you know, the internet is a double-edged sword with no handle, pun intended on the handle. Um, so unfortunately it's like anonymity. People can say what they want and so they will. And so they shit talk online and that's all they do. And they spread malevolent actors. I think all we can do is, as individuals, groupings, um, networks, um, stomp on it as soon as you see it. Um, politely, of course, aggravated and aggressive um, counter speech doesn't work. It just pushes people into doubling down and reinforcing their things. So be super nice. Be like a Canadian. Um, and I, I don't know about the institution thing very quickly. There was a problem once with, uh, you know, who are the people coming into the prisons? They need to be vetted. They, you know, you, you want to deal with, oh, this is a, we don't have any Muslim. You got any Muslim? Yeah, I know a brother. Oh, okay, call him up, da, da, da. Guess what? The guy's on a watch list and you want to bring him in to be, you know, counseling prisoners. So that's always a concern as well. Yes, and I'll, I'll just say to that, uh, we have to allow freedom of worship within reason. So if an inmate says, hey, my worship is, is going to require for me to smoke a peace pipe, well, we're not going to let you do that, or I need to bake these mushrooms as part of my worship, but we're not going to let you do that. And if it is any security threat, then we can say no. So we have shut out certain leaders and certain expressed faith groups because it, we deemed it a security threat and certain items. And, and so anytime that we would see, okay, this is this person is showing toxicity, increasing 
hate talk, violence, whatever, we can say, hey, this is a security threat, so we don't have to accommodate. Thank you to all of you. And I'm going to hand it over to Maya to take us Maya, out, please. Maya, Maya. <laughs> all right, if you guys could just give one more round of applause for our wonderful panelists and our wonderful speakers. So some of you in the room know how I like to end meetings right on time. So I'm going to shorten my remarks to a Toni Morrison quote that I think really summarizes um, my feelings towards this group, but also what has been said. Um, Chris and I were actually talking about it yesterday over dinner. And that's, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And I feel that all of our panelists and speakers here have seen that something needs to be done and they've done the work. So thank you guys for bearing witness to that. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.